0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. If you love barbecued shrimp, undoubtedly you've made your way to the door of Pascal's Minali Restaurant, the place where they were invented. Over the last year, I've spent a tremendous amount of time at Manali's gathering recipes and culinary history for my latest book, the Pascal's Minali Cookbook. On this episode of Louisiana Eats, we'll explore the 105-year-old history of the New Orleans Institution and uncover some previously untold family tales. We begin with a conversation about the role Italian Creoles played in New Orleans food history with Loyola professor Justin Nystrom. Then, We'll explore the family story throughout three generations of voices, including that of Martin H. Radosta, the eldest family member who sadly passed away earlier this year. Then, we'll visit Manali's Oyster Bar for a once-in-a-lifetime shucking experience with celebrity oyster shucker Thomas Stewart, who's also known as Uptown Tea. So, belly up to the Oyster Bar, and get out your best barbecued shrimp bibs. We're going to Pascal's Manale Restaurant on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: My name is Justin Nystrom. I'm an associate professor of history at Loyola University, New Orleans. There I also direct the Center for the Study in New Orleans. Most recently, I'm the author of Creole Italian, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture.
0: Though the major tidal wave of Italian immigration to New Orleans occurred over a century ago, the Sicilian influence on our local foodways can still be found across the city. From the legendary Italian sausages at Terranova's supermarket to the traditional Creole-Italian menu at Pascal's Menali. Loyola professor Justin Nystrom left nothing out in his exhaustive research, which covers the first wave of urban Eustace immigrants in the 1830s, as well as the second wave of rural Sicilians who arrived 50 years later. These new New Orleanians made their mark on the French Quarter, creating the sandwich we know as the muffalata, among many other delicious things. I invited Justin to sit down in our studio and share some highlights from his discoveries. To begin, I asked him to illuminate that elusive
1: term, Creole. We use Creole so much in in a way that it almost loses meaning. And I like the idea of things having some value. And, you know, maybe we need to rethink putting Creole on everything uh, if we're going to make Creole mean anything in the future. You know, we're almost saving Creole by not using it.
0: You also put it forward as um, in this exceptionalism theory as um, sort of a a standalone thing that we are falsely proud of.
1: I, I think we're we're probably rightly proud of, but it's it's false to say it's all that we are. You know, um, we work so hard at marketing Creole to our many visitors every year, and it, you know why? Why not? It's very interesting. We're talking about the Creoles; they're an interesting people. Uh, Creole cuisine, uh, the culture, the literature, uh, but the Creoles are very good at promoting their own their own culture to other people, and we ran with it. And so, I use Creole Italian in the book in an ironic sense, because. One of the ways I think Creole has been used or misused is a marketing ploy. And that if something's worthwhile that we want people to hear about, we just tap Creole onto it. Uh, I was joking earlier, it's sort of like artisan. Uh, You know, McDonald's has artisan sandwiches. What the hell does that mean? You know? And so if we want people to pay attention, we put a term that has some sort of cachet and we you know, tell people. Now, you know, the Italian restaurants, you know, there's a cuisine that we kind of, there's sort of an accepted Creole cuisine. So that's one of those areas where Creole is really defined. And the irony is, is these Italian restaurateurs are cooking that first because that's what, the Italians subsume their own culture to Creole culture. The Creoles are great cultural imperialists when it comes right down to it. They they conquer the Irish, they conquer the Germans, they conquer the Sicilians. And it's only in the 20th century that we see the Italians claim their own culture and then start adding some of their own dishes next door to the Creole ones, and they become Creole-Italian restaurants.
0: What are some of the missing pieces of that Italian culture that existed in the French Quarter visually that we couldn't possibly see today?
1: You know, if you stood at the intersection of Charters and St. Philip, which is really the gravitational center of what was once the Sicilian French Quarter, and you started walking up those, you know, 600 and 700 blocks of St. Philip Street, that was, in 1920, if you did that, the voices in the street you would hear would be Italian ones. Uh, over 80% of the people living on that street had descended directly from Italy, mostly Sicily, of course, and their were ch- their children who were born here and who were young at that time. And Montalbano's delicatessen, of course, is in that block. Today, it's been completely renovated back to an appropriately antebellum structure. But at the time, I mean, you could argue it was aesthetically not that pleasing. It was a cinder block facade, and it was... Very blue collar. And, and But, you know, the children who grew up in the French Quarter in the 40s and 50s, that's one of the first places they would tell me about going into Montebano's Delicatessen was a trip to a different place in time. And, of course, you know, when they filmed King Creel across the street uh, in, the, in the 50s with Elvis Presley, that's when a lot of the outsiders first get to know the muffuletta sandwich at this really singular place on St. Philip Street that's just gone. And it, really a, a treasure. Uh, Gone from the map.
0: So I had never really realized, you know, when you think about New Orleans, Italian Creoles, often you hear people say Sicilian Creoles, but there was
1: a slightly different class of people who were these early traders, and they were coming from Eustica. Right. Uh, so for a period uh, starting in the 1840s, really, Ustica is a tiny little island 60 mi- kilometers north of Palermo. I think it's like five square miles. There are more descendants of the Ustese immigrants in New Orleans today than live on Ustica today.
0: These early importers who expand their imports like tropical fruit, but they're also bringing in other highly sought-after Italian items. They become very wealthy and prominent and sort of have a class of their own here, don't they?
1: That's very true. Um, they're they're located mostly in the French Quarter, and and we forget how important Decatur Street is, in the 19th century, really in up into the really the 30s when things begin to change, when the WPA comes in and really redoes the French Market for the first time, and Decatur Street is the is the drive wheel of the regional food system. So you know. South Florida and Central Florida and and Southern California don't exist as we know them today. You know, vegetables are being grown in places like Kenner and Hammond, and they're traveling up the Illinois Central to great metropolises like Chicago. So New Orleans is this food hub for fresh groceries, which are coming both into the city and then out of the city on rails, and they're coming to the French market. But a lot of the imported goods are also coming in right there on the river and being unloaded on Decatur Street and being either sold wholesale at places like Central Grocery. Central Grocery is one of the last holdouts of these merchant houses. Uh, they're actually late in the grand trajectory of that business. Um, but, but in the 19th century, you have these traders, uh, citrus with the invention of steam on the river. They export all these goods up the Mississippi River Valley, and it all comes in through New Orleans.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about how these wealthy Eustasi, who are socially prominent in their own right, how they work to separate themselves and make themselves unique from the next wave, the Sicilians who come in in the 1880s and 90s who come in to do pretty rough menial labor. And the Eustasi are urban and the second wave are very rural.
1: Yeah, so, so the early merchants come in and, and they really make their mark financially. And the Ustasi are a big part of this and, of course, a big number of them are also from Palermo in, in the citrus fields as well. As they diversify to these steamships, they also can start bringing in labor, and they act as labor agents. They actually are the importers of their countrymen. And uh, in the late 19th century, of course, there's a lot of turmoil in the labor market, and the planters uh, feeling that uh, black labor will not put up with their abuse. Perhaps Sicilian labor will. They're equally incorrect. Um, But for a while, you have men who will actually commute back and forth seasonally on the citrus fleet. It's that inexpensive. And they'll come and work during the harvest season and then go back. A statement on how hard it was in Sicily as well. Um, But over time, they start to stay and build a life here in America. And the vast majority of them work and work very hard, labor camps, levees, logging, all that, truck farming. Uh, but a few of them get foul of the law. Uh, Sicily is a violent place. And if you were a criminal, New Orleans was a great place to come because New Orleans did not have an Ellis Island. So let me describe a little bit. If you're from Sicily and say you're coming in 1900 or 1890, you're in the cargo hold of one of the great white fleet of the citrus importers. You're going to stand out off the river, maybe, a, you know, just enough so you can't swim to shore. And a ship will go out with four doctors, four or five doctors on it, and they'll inspect everybody on the ship. There could be 1,300 people on the ship. Mm. And these four doctors, you can be sure, are going to make a very thorough inspection. Uh, and then the cargo gets about an equal amount of inspection. And then the, the ship comes ashore. They go down the gangplank and melt into the French Quarter. Uh, people are and boom, are Mar- you're an American. You're, you're an American, <laughs> uh, including some unaccompanied minors, I might add. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, the, this is how the first day in America for a lot of Sicilian Again, And it's just fascinating that, you know, the lights that go on in the harbor, you get toward the evening, and, and boom, they touch, and, and there they go. Waiting, you know, families waiting on another side of a rope. There was no inspection. So if you were a criminal, th- th- this very New Orleans-style inspection would be a thing you could evade pretty easily.
0: What an exceptional place we live in, Justin. <laughs> 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 you cite Manali's and, and Mosca's as being two of the survivors as perhaps the two survivors of that era. And Minnelli's, what an amazing place it is that it still is there.
1: Yeah, Minnelli's is interesting because it opens in 1913 during this period when Italian food is really hitting the scene in a big way. And you see them advertising in 1916 in a page that's really aimed at out-of-town visitors. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. And, you know, New Orleans in the region is the hub of Italians in the South. And so people from Atlanta are going to take the train to New Orleans. They don't have Italian food in Atlanta. They're going to come here to New Orleans because it is this place where they're going to have something that they might have in New York or Chicago, but they're not going to have in Birmingham.
0: Well... I am so thrilled to have been able to spend this time with you. I enjoyed the book so much. I highly recommend it to anybody who has any interest in New Orleans history, New Orleans food, or anything at all having to do with exceptional New Orleans.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Poppy, I'm very happy to be here on your show.
0: Thank you, Justin. Great. That was Justin Nystrom, Associate Professor of History at Loyola University. Coming up next, we delve into the family history behind Pascal's Minali Restaurant by speaking with members of the third, fourth, and fifth generations. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy, and nine varieties of fresh Gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. When I decided to write the Pascal's Manali Cookbook, I knew my research would involve exploring two histories. one was the role the restaurant played in the Sicilian evolution of Creole food. The other was the family history, beginning with the emigration of Frank Manali and his siblings from Sicily in 1892. Two years after arriving in New Orleans, Frank's elder sister Francesca married Martin Radosta, another Sicilian immigrant from the same hometown. They had seven children together, and in the years after Frank opened Menali's, those siblings would become the backbone of what the restaurant is today. The oldest of Frank Menali's nephews was Pascal Radosta, who was a fixture behind Manali's bar since its earliest days. When his uncle Frank died in 1932, Pascal took over the restaurant, expanded operations, and changed its name to Pascal's Menali. As part of my research into those early days, I interviewed Pascal's nephew, Martin H. Radosta, whose stories helped paint a colorful picture of his family's history. Sadly, Martin died in May 2018, before we had the chance to interview him for this episode. But then I remembered when I spoke to him in 2017 while gathering material for the book, I had recorded audio of our conversation. Let me
2: tell you what I got here. I got a little book, a whole bunch of things in here on Frank Manali and Pascal Radosta.
0: I want you to tell me everything that you know.
2: Were well, you going
0: to okay. write? Yeah, I'm going to write notes for myself, but also I'm recording every single thing, so I'll have it on my computer, and I can go back and listen to it. The recorder sat on the table between us as we chatted for two hours about his family's history. Martin began by telling me stories about his Uncle Pascal's uncle, Frank Manali.
2: Frank Manali Jr., born February 19, 1880. He was a bootlegger, Uh he He had horses, stocks, and Dixie Brewer Company.
0: Frank Minnelli was a bootlegger who owned racehorses and loved to play the stock market before the 1929 crash. As for Dixie Beer, they acquired exclusivity at Minnelli's by providing the Brunswick bar that still graces the restaurant today. Minnelli's liquor sales proved profitable from the start and continued so through Prohibition. Absinthe frappes and other alcoholic beverages were served secretly in coffee cups up until the repeal of the 18th Amendment.
2: So, so if you wanted a cup of coffee, I, I would get you a coffee cup, a plastic cup, whatever, but they ain't had no coffee in it, though. Oh, you, had okay. a, you had a drink.
0: Located in the back of the building was a barbershop and a bookie on premise as well. Undoubtedly, much cash changed hands there. And despite Frank's claim that he never brought the day's receipts home, some thought otherwise.
2: He knew a lot of uh, racetrack people, the bettors. Mm -hmm. He he knew a lot of gamblers. Mm
3: -hmm. He
2: knew a lot of everything.
0: As Martin pointed out to me, Many of the racehorse gamblers who frequented the restaurant regularly traveled around the country visiting different racetracks. As it turns out, in 1954, one of those racetrack folks was responsible for introducing Pascal to an unusual shrimp dish he had enjoyed in Chicago.
2: His name was Joe Sutro, and he told Pascal about this dish that he had, but it was so good that he wanted to show him. He took Pascal into the kitchen and they made some barbecue shrimp. He says, man, this is going to be a winner. Uh And from what I understand, if they tried to put something on the menu that wasn't on the menu, he had his friends, did make it and serve it to you. Mm
0: -hmm. You liked
2: it, we kept it. You didn't like it? Uh See you later. He
0: just ran a little poll there.
2: Right. And they've been doing it ever since.
0: The restaurant was a neighborhood hub, frequented by politicians, celebrities, sports figures, and locals alike.
2: Manali's was always a real prestige restaurant. If you were somebody, Frank might talk to you. And the same way with Pascal. Pascal had a lot of friends. Pascal had very important friends. You know, I'm talking about a guy that he wasn't a school guy or an attorney or anything, but he made himself into a prominent person.
0: Everybody wanted to be a pal of Pascal, who was affectionately known as Pass, including F. Edward Bear, Louisiana's longest-serving member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Bear was quoted as saying, Manali's is the only restaurant I know where the customer is always wrong. That's because when Hebert ordered steak, Paz told him he was having oysters instead. And he did. The congressman had this to say about his friend Pascal. If a customer whose look he didn't like walked through the doors with the bar packed with patrons, he would tell him, I'm sorry, but we're closed.
2: they had to pay attention because this guy was cruel. I know he had a he had a shootout in his own garage. Everybody in, in Manales carried guns. I mean, it was a, an arsenal. I carried a gun all my life, and I never used it. But I carried it, because everybody else had one. What the hell? So, so, so did I.
0: Through much of the 1960s and 70s, Martin functioned as maitre d' at the restaurant, a job he relished. Most nights, the bar was packed with hungry guests waiting to be called for an open table. Martin remembered using the loudspeaker to call guests to their table. I
2: used to have more fun with that mic. You know, when you're at the mic and everybody's out there and everybody's talking and talking and the crowd gets to be noisier and noisier, and every now and then I'd go to the mic and I'd say, Paging! But I wouldn't say nothing else. So everybody else would shut up.
0: I said, no, I'm just kidding.
2: Oh. <laughs>
0: Some nights, the crowd was so thick that guests with reservations couldn't get to the podium. They would call the restaurant from the payphone at the door and say, we're here, but we can't get in. And once you were in, Martin wasn't going to let you go. When told that there was a wait of an hour and a half, one regular customer protested making a scene. Okay. And he would
2: hang around right where I was, trying to keep a book with the names and talking on the mic and everything, and I had him to contend with, a PIA, <laughs> you understand? Uh-huh. So finally I told him, I said, look, if you don't shut up, I said, i got to do something to move you from here. Go sit down, go somewheres. Well, blah, 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 I said, said to myself, I'll fix this. And I went in the bar behind the register. They had drawers there. And
0: From the drawer, the Martin grabbed a hammer and nail and walked back to the impatient customer. Martin grabbed the guy's tie and nailed it to the bar.
2: Nailed him to the counter. I said, "Now you want to stay here? Now you got a reason to stay here." I nailed him to the bar. <laughs>
0: what did
2: he do? He do? I'm going to do nothing. What he's going to How
0: long did he stay there with his tie nailed to the
2: bar? Well, until I pulled it out with the hammer. <laughs>
0: That was the late Martin H. Radosta speaking to me in 2017. If you're interested in hearing more stories like this one from Manali's early days, you'll find them between the pages of the Pascal's Manali Cookbook.
3: My name is Bob DeFelice, and my siblings and I are fourth-generation owner-operators of Pascal's Minnelli Restaurant in New Orleans.
0: We now move from the third to the fourth generation at Pascal's Minnelli. After Pascal Rodasta died of a heart attack in his office at the restaurant in 1958, Minnelli's continued to be a family affair. All of his children were involved at one time or another, In 1988, Virginia DeFelice, Pascal's youngest daughter and her family, purchased the restaurant from her sister Frances. Bob DeFelice is Virginia's son and Pascal's grandson. One of the interesting things about your family is that although the original was Manali and then your grandfather's last name was Rodasta, your mother and your Aunt Ranri they married brothers. Tell us about how the Dayfelice name comes in and the life that you all had that really wasn't a city life.
3: No, it wasn't at all. Actually, my Uncle Steve, who married my mom's sister, Frances, my Uncle Steve and my father had a business in Myrtle Grove called Myrtle Grove Packing Company, and it was a huge facility that specialized mostly in canning seafood but they would can anything we even had they had a, a line of fig preserve called de felice's delight that they canned and sold in the stores uh, here but my mom grew up on louisiana avenue parkway which was one of the ritzy places of at the time and then of course the, with the restaurant there was always something going on my dad on the other hand where they grew up i mean not that they was starving or anything, but it was lean time. My dad was born in a little shotgun house on uh, LA 308 and Cut Off, Louisiana, and by Lafourche. And when my mom married my dad, which was in I want to say 48, 1948, having the factory, the the Motor Grove Packing Company, we call it the factory Motor Grove Packing Company, which they started that business in 1950. They moved to Myrtle Grove. So my mom went from, you know, the ritzy part of the city to being in the middle of nowhere with the mosquitoes and the lizards and the snakes and the spiders and the alligators and everything else. And she's definitely afraid of spiders for sure. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a big difference.
0: One of the great treats of coming here is having a chance to look at all the pictures that go from floor to ceiling of Famous athletes, famous musicians, famous actors and actresses. Tell us a little bit about the celebrity side of Pascal's Manali.
3: Well, I guess in the early years, how Pascal's Manali became popular, or Manali restaurant became popular, was when folks would have out-of-town guests come in, they would bring them here to get away from the hustle and bustle of downtown and the French Quarter and downtown and and all of that. And that's how we kind of became very popular. So over the years, the celebrities found out about where we were and started coming and I guess word got out. because you look at the uh, book that Pascal started and some of the names that are in there and, and I know it's in the book, but it's just incredible the people that came through here that everybody would know. Uh, celebrities from from all over the world really and uh, sports figures from probably all over the world.
0: You all are managing to entice a third generation of Mannings because I hear Archie comes here with his grandchildren all the time.
3: That is correct. They're, They're in here fairly often and that's pretty exciting to have the third generation of the Mannings coming in but you know we have in some cases, fourth and fifth generation, that families that have been coming here since the beginning, that are coming today, it's incredible. One one night we had four generations in one of the private rooms. In that private room, four generations of family in that room. Our customers, they're the best, and they're loyal, and they come week in and week out. Some of them come, you know, m- multiple times during the week, or once a month. You know, it, that's the backbone of this business is our regular customers, and the, them being faithful to us, even when you know the times that we've had some hard times, like Katrina, and and then we had the oil spill, and then we had almost four years of Napoleon Avenue being torn up for some subsurface drainage work, and you could hardly even get here, and we still had people that made the effort to come here. So we have special customers, and there's a bunch of them, and I don't want to name any names because we would be here for hours.
0: That was Bob Daefelis, co-owner and operator of Pascal's Manali Restaurant.
4: My name is Rachel DeFelice, and I am a member of the fifth generation of Pascal's Manali. My name is Elizabeth DeFelice, and I am a member of the fifth generation of Pascal's Manali.
0: And finally, we speak with Rachel and Elizabeth, who were both instrumental in helping me put the Pascal's Manali cookbook together. When they joined us in the studio, we talked about their earliest memories of the restaurant and, of course, the cookbook. Elizabeth, what does this book mean to you? Let, let's talk about how long <laughs> your mother—you and you know, you're, you're the only child, of course, of yes. the only surviving sister of the Felice family. And this is something that your mama wanted, huh? Yeah, when I first started working with the family,
4: um, <clears throat> my mom showed me a list of her goals that she had when they took over, which was, I guess, 30 years ago. And Cookbook was at the top of the list, and it was funny because shortly thereafter, you came into the mix with Mark, and he mentioned that you wanted to do the book, and I was thinking, oh, God, this is never going to happen because it was a goal 30 years ago that didn't get accomplished. (laughs) And so when he kind of put me in charge of sort of spearheading it with you, I realized that this maybe could become a reality. So it's very special to see our family history unfolded in this book and all of the great food and just the memories it means a lot it's great i i can't i still feel like it's a dream and it's not real Mm -hmm. i'm gonna wake up and this is gonna be a dream that we had and it's still gonna be the 30-year plan years ago
0: um (laughs) Elizabeth, what are your earliest memories of being at the restaurant and working at the restaurant?
4: Um, I mean, definitely one of my earliest memories is going there after school. My mom would pick me up and I would have to go there, you know, for her to finish her work day and going in the kitchen and like standing on a crate to help make the bread pudding. I don't know. I remember it was so funny that you just use your bare hands to like mix all that stuff together. I hung out in the kitchen a lot. I mean, I definitely can't cook like Rachel can. So, yeah, I grew up working there my, my whole life. Just as a, even as a small kid, I would come in, do little small jobs. Like, I, I was the shrimp peeler and the potato peeler. That's what I did for a while. And peeled onions as well. <laughs> and just loved it. Just loved being in the kitchen, loved the energy. And I
0: just knew this is what I wanted to do. Your grandparents were at the restaurant, you know, right up until their death. In essence, in oh, many ways, yeah. I imagine Minali's was like going to grandma and grandpa's in a lot of ways. Yeah, oh, we yeah. definitely yeah. spent a lot of lunches and dinners there with them. I so wish they could be here to see this book. They would be so touched by it. Okay, so let's just let's just look into the future. What do you all hope and dream for the future of your lives and the future of the restaurant?
4: I would say I hope that we can just continue on the family legacy of the restaurant. We, I know my my grandfather said that a lot. My mom remembers that quote from him over and over is you will never get this opportunity again. It's never something that you can just rewrite, you know. I mean, so I think no. for me to be able to continue working alongside my family, you know, and living out this dream of just having something that you can't just ever get back you know having being able to live that out with my cousins and hopefully be able to continue on the success and bring new ideas you know Rachel obviously like I said is an amazing chef and she could probably bring you know keeping the tradition but bring an even more elevated experience
0: as far as that goes how about you Rachel what are your hopes and dreams for the future
4: I hope I hope that it stays in the family and that it keeps going until the sixth generation. I really do. I think it's very important, especially to the city. Because yeah, absolutely, to New Orleans. Yeah. If you, it's 105 years going. So, yeah, I think that's the main thing too. Is just being able to be like, like I said, when I tell people about the restaurant, what I do, and the how old it is, and how many generations. I mean, people, especially people that don't live in New Orleans, when you meet people in other cities, they're just like. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that's such, that's amazing. What an amazing accomplishment. You know, you just don't hear stuff like that every day. No. And especially outside of New Orleans, we can all agree on that, that that's just not – this city is special to the restaurant industry and just creating legacies like that.
0: Rachel and Elizabeth DeFeliz. Which of Louisiana's important political characters makes an appearance in both the Toujac's Restaurant Cookbook and the Pascal's Manali book? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarain's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? We've just posted the second episode of my travels in search of the winning Ora King salmon dish. Over the series of three podcasts, we travel to Austin, Texas, Brooklyn, New York, and Los Angeles, California. Just go to poppytooker.com and click on the Quick Bites podcast link to find those podcasts and more. And stay tuned for an upcoming episode of Louisiana Eats, where we'll reveal which chef wins the big prize in New Zealand. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's Culinary Quiz Question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. Which of Louisiana's most important political characters makes an appearance in both the Tujac's Restaurant Cookbook and the Pascal's Manali Book? It's F. Edward Hebert, Louisiana's longest-serving congressman. F. Edward Bear was a great friend of Pascal's and in fact credited him with Bear's political success. He inscribed the guest book there. It all began at Menali's with Pascal. Needless to say, you can find photos of F. Edward Bear and his buddy Pass throughout the Menali's book. But you can also find F. Edward Bear in the Tujacs book, too. Those Louisiana politicians really no good food. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
5: Alright, I'm Thomas Stewart. Some people call me Uptown T, and we have Pascal Manali's Restaurant.
0: New Orleans walks to the beat of a different drummer. That's evident in everything we do, including hospitality. Whether it's the doorman at the Monteleon Hotel, Mr. or Ms. Okra selling fresh vegetables out of a pickup truck, or Uptown Tea, Oyster Shucker Extraordinaire at Pascal's Manale. So far so good?
5: So far so good.
0: You are guaranteed to get some friendly banter and great service from him at the Oyster Bar there, along with some delicious oysters. On a recent afternoon on Napoleon Avenue, I stood at the Oyster Bar at Pascal's Menali while Uptown Tea, Thomas Stewart, served up a full dish of repartee, along with a few oysters.
5: I've been here at this bar for about 25 years. Um, started off in the kitchen and just worked, moved my way through the kitchen and learned pretty much all the different stations and uh, the different dishes and the menu, what have you. And uh, one day they had a position of the oyster bar where the guy didn't come in or whatever, no call, no show, and they needed oyster sucker And I asked the chef, could I give it a try? But he didn't want to lose me in the kitchen. But all the same time, I'm like, quote unquote you're not losing me you're gaining me because i can work the kitchen and if i could work the front of the house too i mean what more
0: before you became the oyster shucker you started off as dishwasher here in the dish room and it was 10 years in the kitchen before we got to meet you out front yes
5: that is correct because i just wanted something different
0: get a little warm
5: in that kitchen and i could take the heat you know if it can't take the heat stay out the kitchen i couldn't stay out the kitchen But I just wanted to learn something different. When I found out that I can become a people's person, I decided to work my way through it. So Chef one time, he gave me a chance at it. And I walked up to him and said, uh, Hey, man, I see I have uh, an application I want to put in for oyster shuck. I see the ad in the paper. But I'm working here, okay? And uh, he was like, I guess he was fascinated by that for me to say that. And he gave me a chance, and I worked the kitchen during lunchtime. And when they didn't have anything in the back to do and they needed an oyster sucker, I'd come up front and tap on some oysters. And then as time progressed and he saw what I can do by proving myself and showing him what I can do, here I am 25, 26 years later. And I'm still knocking at the door saying my feet is on the ground, the sunk into the soil. I'm established now and I enjoy what I do and I'll constantly do it until I just can't do it anymore.
0: Well, here comes the moment we all wait for. Here at Pascal Minnelli's when somebody comes up with a chip. I've I, I come with my chip. All
5: right, well, I got a half a dozen coming at you in 3D. Right. So you better strap up your parachute, because I'm going to take you up for a long ride in the sky.
4: <laughs> I'm ready for it.
5: All right, I hope you are ready, because I'm going to get down with the get down. And then you're going to have to learn how to get back up and do it again, because we're going to do it over and over and over all
3: right, until
5: want- your heart is content.
0: You know, Thomas, I just love that. This must be a first-time Manali's oyster eater because she was surprised by the fact that you were flipping that oyster right up on the marble bar for her.
5: Yes, yes. Some people get fascinated by that because they never stood at an oyster bar and eat oysters. They always sat down. Well, this is one of the oldest that I was told stand-up oyster bars in New Orleans.
0: What's the secret to opening an oyster the right way?
5: Um... Not basically a secret, but sometimes by, like I said before, by doing it so many times and you get the hang of how to do it, you have to get to know the oyster, mean and observe it, you know, when you first, before you start. So you can look at each oyster differently because they're all shaped in one by length, not always in width, mostly length. That's how they grow, like a tree would grow, like agriculture, aquaculture. And because of that, Every time you pick up that oyster, you don't have to look at it to see where to put the knife to open it up. You just grab it and go for it because it's a field thing. It's a field thing. You just have to know how to put your fingers right up on it and say, I got you, baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thomas, you do have your way with oysters. Now tell us, how did you get that name, Uptown Tea? Well, first of all,
5: I'm from Uptown. I live Uptown, New Orleans practically all my born days, and my little customers come in and come in and they always saying T, saying T, T. "T." That's what they call me instead of timer because they can't remember T. So one of my little customers that used to come in and he always say, uptown, uptown. Then I said, then I picked up on it. And then when people ask me my name, I give them my little phrase of who I am by not a chant, not rap, not singing but it's just in a jiving way of speaking. And I would say, they would say, well, what's your name? i say, Puddin' Tang, you ask me again, I'm gonna tell you the same. I am, I am town T, the one and only one beneath the sun. Often imitated, but never can be duplicated. When I say 3D, you better step back, relax, cause you're gonna see me Uptown T, and you can call me Thomas, and you know what I say? Chao Chao Chao, baby.
0: What is your favorite thing about working here at Manali's Behind the Oyster Bar?
5: People people. I would say people other than just liking the shuck oysters. It's it's an intense job. Get rough sometimes. You have a bunch of folks that you're trying to feed all that. Not at one time, but trying to accommodate everyone so by being, when it's like that, you're on a good move. So I have to have a way of having the people comfortable while I'm serving them because I'm serving more than just one person and only can open one oyster at a time. So I get into the groove of the people by feeling their vibes. If their vibes are groovy, then I pick up on it Take that spoonful of sugar, add it to my tea, stir it up, and taste it, and I'll make it so sweet.
0: Now, not everybody knows this, but I do. On Mondays here, when they serve red beans and rice, yes. you're cooking the red beans and rice.
5: I would not call myself the red bean king, but I can cook a pretty mean pot of red beans that folks would enjoy. You cook with love, you cook with flavor. I just do it simply, you know, like mama used to cook. My mama used to cook the food and make her red beans. She did it simple, plain, simple, but yet good. And that's the key—the goodness. And the goodness have to come from your heart, which is called love, L-O-V-E, baby. I didn't know you was famous uptown, T. you <laughs> like? Chocolate on top of cherry. That's so sweet. I created a lot of friends by just standing behind this oyster bar, by just being who I am. You know, and I try to stay humble or keep myself humble so I can have people to come back and not just see me, but for this establishment and all of the family.
0: The Oyster Bar is, of course, right here across from the door. So in essence, you're kind of the front door here at Manali.
5: Um, Pretty much. Yeah. And I actually, believe it or not, I, I consider what you're saying on that because I have the little elderly ladies that's been coming in forever and ever and how long, and they walk through that door sometimes and they happen to look over here at the oyster bar and they'll look for me and if I'm not up here, I could be in the kitchen or something. Then when I come up here, they're eating and when they leave, they'll look at me and say, now where you've been? Why you wasn't up here at the oyster bar when I came in? Because I make them smile, not really make them smile, but I created a pattern for them to smile by greeting them. And if it's a little elderly lady, i say, hey, girlfriend, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, I have this one particular lady, if you don't mind, comes in with her husband. And every time she walks through that door, I say, hey, girlfriend. She say, hey, boyfriend. And she walks up to the bar and kiss me <laughs> on the cheek. And her little husband just stand there and look at me, say, well, now nah, I'm going to have trouble with you again today, man. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm just keeping it live for you and myself. Because I don't want her to beat me up, and I definitely don't want you to hurt me. So I'm going to keep us smiling so you can smile. let me say, Okay, I'm going to take that one and go with it. But, yeah, that's the kind of fun I have.
0: Well, Thomas, thank you for this. Thank you for being the front door here and for all of the many delicious oysters that you have opened for me here at the bar at Pascal's Manali. Thank you, Thomas. And
5: you're so very welcome, and I hope to see you again sometime and you bring that sunshine with you every time you come, okay? Even if it's raining. That's a deal. Cha-cha-cha, baby.
0: Thomas Stewart of Pascal's Manali. Ciao, 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 baby.
3: Ciao, ciao, bambina. Un
1: bacio ancora. E poi
0: per sempre. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcasts and also order a personalized copy of my new book The just released, Pascal's Manali Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. I'll be at Garden District Books in New Orleans on Thursday, October 25th, and at the Covington Farmer's Market on Saturday, October 27th. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans and from Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don Seafood at one of their 6 Southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport-Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch featuring a build your own Bloody Mary bar. Located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullideau. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.